Happy anniversary, Transit Church. Here I am, Pastor Jeff, just coming to you all, reflecting on where we've been and the journey that God has brought us on in this last year. I can't help but reflect on Jesus' words in Matthew 16, where he's talking to his, his closest friends, the disciples, and he simply remarks that, uh, that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And I think really any church that starts from, from nothing and becomes something is a miracle of God. And so we are a miracle and we're one year old. So happy birthday. When I think about the journey that we've traveled, you have to go all the way back to North Carolina where we dared to believe that God would take just me and my family to partner with him and build a church, build his church. And so uh, we took the dare and we set our sights on coming to Alexandria, Virginia, right outside the heart of, of DC. Moved in September 2012. My, that was a hard move, at least for my family it was. And uh, we got ourselves settled. And really a month later, we began having community groups in our home. Uh, Sunday afternoons, y'all remember that? God really began to build a church right in the midst of our townhouse in Kingstown in April of last year. A whole year ago, um, we launched. Over this last year, we've seen God do some great things. We started meeting in Hayfield Secondary School, and by God's grace, we have added to our number. We've added community groups, uh, more opportunities for people to uh, be the, the church that comes together during the week, where we exhort each other, where we fellowship, and you know, more importantly, how we rub against each other so that we would encourage each other in the gospel. Along with that, we're partnering uh, with organizations. We featured Orphan Sunday uh, this past November. We have the, the exciting opportunity to, to baptize some new believers. This is an exciting time. It's an exciting time to see all that God is doing um, in our church and the anticipation that I have is he's not going to do things in our church but there's great things that he's going to do through us in our city. The journey is just beginning. I'm glad that you're a part. Let's stay together on the journey. We're blessed to have with us Pastor Bill Rydell from Redemption Hill Church in the heart of D.C. His church meets on Capitol Hill. And Bill comes with a prophetic voice to those of us that live in the D.C. Uh, DC metro area. I think you'll uh, be blessed and challenged by his word today. Bill's married to Alyssa. I don't know how many, how many years you've been married, Bill. He said, ah, uh, thinking about it. So 13 years. They've got three beautiful kids. You saw them in worship with us uh, Zoe, he's got a Zoe as well, uh, Alana and Simon, did I get those names right? Leanne. And uh, Bill is part of the Acts 29 network, of, of whom we are also a, a part, and so he's a sister church. Bill is uh, a growing friend of mine, but more than that, I think he's, you know, I would call him a mentor. He's a mentor amongst uh, a group of pastors here in the Northern Virginia area, and uh, I, I learn a lot from him every time I meet with him, uh, and I think you're going to um, be both blessed and challenged by him this morning. It's great to have Pastor Bill right there with us for our anniversary, so let's welcome him. Um, well, first of all, let me say congratulations on one year for the transit. Um, we, I love to, be, to see seeds of the gospel planted and a church grow from that work. Um, we are, as, as Pastor Jeff mentioned, part of the X29 network, which, is, which the transit is part of Redemption Hill Church. Um, the church that we started a few years ago now is part of um, X29 is a network of churches that start new churches, that is passionate about starting new churches. And so I had the privilege of getting to know Pastor Jeff and Larissa 
Larissa through the assessment process in Acts 29, which, if you aren't familiar with it, is, is incredibly rigorous. It's really difficult. As an assessor, that means that I got 90 pages of material on, the, on those two. Um, and we walked through and assessed their fittedness for starting a church, and their health is in their marriage, and, and his character, and his ability to lead a church. Um, and we have, since that point, been praying for Jeff and Larissa. We've been praying for the transit. We pray for you as a church, and we are excited to be alongside you in this area. Um, you, uh, we keep seeing pictures. My kids have been really excited seeing pictures of the Rodriguez family, Jesus and Carla, um, who we also support, and so we are linked also in the work in Mexico City. So it's a, really a blessing and a privilege for me to be here today with you to celebrate your one-year anniversary. Let's pray together, and we'll open up the word together. Father, Thank you for the chance we have to be here today. I thank you for the work that you are doing in and through the Transit Church. I, we ask that, that things would happen in year two that, um, that can only be attributed to you for the sake of your glory. That, that you would do great things in and through the people that are part of this now and, and the people who are not yet a part of this church but will be in the coming months and year. Um, We ask that you would be establishing a work here that would not just be a flash in the pan, but something that would be sustainable and a long-term investment of gospel ministry here in this place. We thank you for um, calling Jeff and Larissa here. We thank you for the family and the church community that you have built so far. And thank you for the work that you will continue to do as Jesus continues to build his church. I ask now that you would open your word to us, that your spirit would open our hearts to receive it and our eyes to see you, our ears to hear what you have for us. And I ask that um, the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as the name of your church indicates, we live in an incredibly transient area. I mean, already, I mean, even today, we were, you were saying goodbye to you know, foundational members of the transit. And we experience the same. We are right on Capitol Hill, and so throughout the D.C. area, it's, it is incredibly transient. We, in 2013, had somewhere around 60% of our church move away. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really difficult. And because of that, there are too many people in this area that are essentially on an extended vacation in D.C. Um, we experience this a lot. Maybe for some of you, that's the way you feel. For some of you, this, you you're, as soon as I say that, you're like, if that's, this is a vacation, it's the worst vacation I've ever had. <laughs> Um, because some of you come to D.C., so many people come to D.C., and it's, it's career or education or something else that brings you here, but it's not because you wanted to be here. Um, now, some really love the city. Where we live, we get a lot of, I mean, our church is about 65% singles. Um, our average age is 27, and so we have a lot of people that are in love with the benefits of the city, but use up the city and then cast it aside and move on. And so they love the diversity of experience and they've romanticized what the city is like and then they live here for a couple of years and they're like, okay, and I've done that and I'm moving out of the city now. Um, but, but it, I, so we ask our people the questions all the time. Do you really love this place? Are you just consuming it and using it so that you can move on? Or are you investing yourself here? Are you just looking to advance your career? Or are you looking to just have fun and settle in elsewhere? Or are you going to invest? And I want to ask you today the same question. You're a year into the work here. You're, some of you are just getting in, involved in the transit. Maybe today is your first morning. Um, and so you, hopefully this will... Stir your understanding of what it means to be starting a church in this context. 
And I want to ask you this morning, do you really love the place that God has put you in right now, where you are? Do you, does it show in your life, does it show in your approach to your involvement in this church? Um, this morning we're going to have a reminder of God's call on us. And so we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 29. If you have a Bible, please open it to that. If not, there's lots of them at the end of the rows. I'm in Jeremiah 29 today, and we're going to cover verses 4 through 14 as we go. And in this passage, we will see the call of God's people as sojourners and exiles in this world. And so this is, this is, as we enter into the story of the Israelites here, this is around 597 BC, so 600 years before the time of Christ. Um, the, people had been take, the Israelites had been taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. And so they had been taken from their homes, and, they, and this is from the southern kingdom. Jeremiah was God's prophet to his people, and, and he was called by God to reassure the people in exile, to warn the people in exile. But this is a foundational passage as we look at the storyline of Scripture for what it is to be God's people in a place that is not your home. So that's what we're going to see today, is our call as sojourners and exiles. So Jeremiah chapter 29, I'll start reading in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the, to the place from which I sent you into exile." This is the word of the Lord. So this is what we see in Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to begin today by seeing that we are in exile. The people of God are always in exile. We, God, and here it's, in, in, it's something that we need to note, that it's God who sent them there. Now this is going to be something that would be shocking for the exiles to hear, because what they're being told is, you have been ripped from your home, you've been taken into slavery under this king in a foreign place. People have been slaughtered along the way. And now God is saying to them, the first thing we see in verse 4 is, Thus says the Lord to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And God isn't hiding from his responsibility in this. He's saying, I am the one who has sent you where you are. Now, this is, this is a pervasive theme throughout Scripture, then, something that comes that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you, are, if you are a Christian, one of God's people, then this imagery is picked up by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter 2, he says, 
you are a chosen race if you are in Christ. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. And so Peter picks up this imagery of the Israelites and says from Exodus 19, when they, the covenant God made in Mount Sinai, and he picks up the imagery and says, listen, this imagery of being God's chosen people, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, Israel's calling is now applied to the church. It's now applied to God's people who are in Jesus Christ. And he says, this is who you are. If you're in Jesus, then you are God's people. And your purpose is worship, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. He says, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And then he goes on to say, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so Peter then picks up the exile imagery and says, if you're a Christian, if you're in Jesus, then this is who you are. You're a sojourner. You're an exile. You're someone who is passing through and living in a place that is not your ultimate home. No matter where you are, no matter where you live, no matter how long you live there. And we get this so confused because we think that we can lay down roots in so many places. And then you live in a place like the D.C. area and you realize that everybody here is a sojourner. Everybody is in exile. And as Christians, this is something that we feel more acutely. If you just turn on the news and watch media or follow the Christian blogosphere, everybody feels like there's massive cultural shifts happening in our nation, right? And there are. Things are shifting. You have people talking about the rise of the nuns, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S. People that, that claim no religious affiliation. You have shifts happening in legislation across the country, which are just showing more acutely what has been the reality for decades in this country anyway. You see, what we're having is, is the, the downfall of civil religion and cultural Christianity in this country. For a lot of Christians, that's something that has been a terrifying move. Um, I think it's something we ought to celebrate. Because what's happening is not that, that there are less people that are actually connected to Jesus. What's happening is that people are getting more honest. And they're more willing to claim when they aren't connected to him. And, but what it's doing is it's more acutely showing that this is not a Christian nation. That this is not a Christian culture. That our nation, when you think about the United States of America the first thing that we think about is probably not, these people really love God supremely and others sacrificially. That's not where we live. And so it's at least becoming clearer. And so we can make no mistake about it. If you're a a follower of Jesus, you live in exile. You are a sojourner. Not just in D.C., but wherever you are, by nature, because your home is not here, it's in eternity, in God's presence But we need to remember, too, and make no mistake about this, that God is the one that's responsible for our exile. He has put you where he has, when he has. We read this in Acts 17. Paul makes it his way to Athens. And Paul gets to Athens after being run out of two cities previous, where he he gets into one city in Thessalonica, and people rioted and chased him out of the city. And so he goes on to a next town, Berea. And when he gets to Berea, the people were so mad at him in Thessalonica that they followed him to Berea to chase him out of Berea. And the people that were working with Paul basically said, Paul, can you just get out of here? (laughs) I mean, you're doing great. Thank you for preaching the gospel. But there's people here we need to work with, and we can't just keep getting run out. So they said, you just go on to Athens and wait for us. 
And he could have sat back and rested and waited for his friends to get there, but instead he gets involved, meeting people in the marketplace in the wisest city at the time. Frankly, Athens is, it was that, DC is our culture's Athens. I think New York is our Rome, but DC is our Athens. And so we live here, you, you live very close by to, to Athens, and we live in a similar context. He engages in dialogue with people, and then as he gets the opportunity to go to the Areopagus, he, he stands up and he preaches, and as he does, he observes their culture and says, listen, this is what I see here. You're very religious, and I see an altar to an unknown God, so let me tell you about this unknown God. And he begins with creation. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, you see Paul begins by observing culture, and then he doesn't shirk away from identifying the dis- disconnect with the culture of Athens and the truth of God's word. But he goes on then in verse 26 to say, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. You hear what he says there? He made, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So what you need to hear this morning, this is important, no matter who you are or what your background is, no matter what your experiences are coming into this place, and no matter what suffering or what prosperity you've experienced in your life, you need to remember that there is one God who created you, and he has determined the periods and the boundaries of your dwelling place. He has put you where he has, when he has, for a reason. That means nothing, none of that happens by accident. That means that even this morning, you aren't here by accident. You are here for a reason. He has he put you where he has, when he has. In verse 27, it says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. It is actually not far from each one of us. So God has put you where he has, when he has, so that you would seek him. You need to hear this morning that he is not far from any one of you. That any of us need to, need to are, is we're, is we're groping around, this is the imagery here, like somebody in a dark room, that he's not far from us and he's put us where he has, when he has, so that as we're seeking our way through this life, we will find him. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to hear that he, God has put you where he has, when he has, into exile, maybe even into exile in D.C., so that you will seek him and find him, and so that you can be used by him as others are on that journey of seeking him to lead them to finding him. You're not here by accident. You're not in Alexandria by accident. You're not here this morning by accident. And some of you wish that you were somewhere else. You need to, some of you need to hear this morning that you need to stop wishing you were somewhere else and stop relying on a plan B for when you get out of this place and start living where God has put you. Don't waste the time that you have. The time is short. Don't waste it. Embrace where God has put you for all its good aspects, for all its difficulties, and seek him. He's not far from you. So this is what we see in Jeremiah 29. God is responsible for placing them into exile. And then he goes on, though, to say that God has placed us here for the welfare of our city. 
And so in Israel, this is what he has to say to them. And again, these would have been hard words for the Israelites to hear. He's saying, these people that have dragged you away from your home and slaughtered your people and put you into slavery in that place, now what you need to do there, Israelites, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons. Multiply here and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Israel was being invited to join God's work. In creation, this is what we see God doing. He's forming and filling and cultivating his creation. That's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. God's at work in forming and filling and cultivating. And so he's now he's saying to the Israelites, this is what I want you to do. I want you to form, to build houses and build gardens. I want you to cultivate, plant gardens and eat the produce from them. I want you to, to be a part of filling. The, the creation mandate here still stands. Have sons and daughters and let your, have your kids get married. You need to invest in and have life in in the city where I've put you, and even seek the welfare, the good of Babylon. Even Babylon. And this, this word welfare in the ESV is the word shalom. Welfare is a good translation. It's, it's holistic good and peace and welfare, wholeness and prosperity, that they are to seek the shalom of that city, of that place. You know, how could God call them to this? After everything they had been through, we almost would expect that God would call them, or at least that the Israelites would say, would be crying out to him, you know, praying for Babylon's demise and their destruction. That they, would, they might, um, or on the other side, that maybe that, that they would be tempted to just become Babylonian and embrace the culture that they were within. That, you know, this is where we typically fall. And you see this here. As people come into the D.C. area, we see our nation's gods and idols on display. We have beautiful monuments that are stunning. If you ever see the monuments at night, I think that's my favorite time to see them. Everything's lit up. Usually there's a few less tourists around. And you can go in and see, and it's gorgeous. You see these monuments, and you walk into some of them, they, they even say, they talk about themselves as being temples. Um, you walk into the Capitol sometime and see the rotunda, when you walk underneath the beautiful rotunda of the Capitol, you see this really stunning painting on the top of it that is really hard to understand because it's George Washington like with his general's jacket on, and he's surrounded by these angelic creatures and women. <laughs> and it's called the Apotheosis of Washington. You know what apotheosis is? The lifting up to be God of Washington. Our nation celebrates, and especially here in our nation's capital, we see the idols of power and wealth on display everywhere. Now, coming here, it would be easy to either spend our time doing nothing but separating ourselves out and rejecting, preaching against and condemning this place, or to fall off on the other side and just get so sucked into it that you look just like the rest of the city. The Israelites would have had the same temptations to be crying out to God and saying, please rain down fire on Babylon for us, or to just start looking Babylonian because it's, it's going to make life easier. But we, that's not what we see their calling is. God says to them, he says to, he's saying, build houses, invest in this place, but seek the welfare and pray to me, pray to the Lord, Yahweh, on its behalf, because it's in its welfare that you'll find your own. And so he calls the Israelites as exiles to worship him, to remember his promises to them, and then simultaneously to seek the welfare and peace, the wholeness, the prosperity, the shalom of that city. 
And for us, this is why our work is so important. Your career is so important. The things you invest in are so important because God has placed us where he has, when he has, as exiles. And we then have the opportunity to join him like the Israelites did in forming and filling and cultivating his creation and bringing the welfare of our city. But we need to live life right where God has placed us. We need to remember that he's the one that's responsible for putting us here and that this place isn't our ultimate home. And if we can remember those things, that God has placed us where he has when he has, and this place isn't our ultimate home, then we'll actually be freed to engage the culture of this place. We won't have to fall off into just separating and condemning or adopting everything, and it will be freed to remember that we reflect not this place, but we reflect our ultimate home in Christ's kingdom. So, um, this is where we're called as churches to be centered on the gospel, the, the, to be worshiping Jesus, be, to be, have, have gospel-centered community, gospel-centered work in our cities, um, because this is what is the core of everything. Remember Paul in Athens, in the Areopagus, and when he got up there, he started by telling the story of who God is and what he's done. We need to realize that people in our context, and some of you may not know the story of what God has done. We look at the Bible so often as being either a list of rules for us to follow, things we do and don't do. Or we'll look at the Bible and, say, and think that the Bible is a bunch of heroes that we should emulate. Until you start to read the Bible and realize that it's not a story of heroes. And if these are heroes we're supposed to emulate, our lives are going to be pretty ugly and messed up. I mean, the things that people do is throughout, throughout Scripture are terrible. We have like some, of the, some of the greatest heroes. of The rock on whom Jesus built his church was somebody who abandoned him when he was being killed and was too scared of a servant girl in the high priest's courtyard to even admit that he knew Jesus. And he ends up being the one that God uses in, even through his failure to establish his church. So it's not about heroes, it's not about rules, but what we have in Scripture is God's story. From beginning to end, it's his story of, of his, it's the story of redemption. It starts with him as creator. That's why Paul started there in Athens. He said, God is your creator and he made you. He has put you where he has what he has for a reason. And we have rejected him. Every one of us lives in a posture of rebellion against God as we, as we put ourselves at the center and really serve ourselves as our own gods. And as soon as we start to shape God, we, we're really good. I mean, God made us in his image and likeness, but we continually try to shape him into our image and likeness. And so, what the, but God doesn't leave us in a rebellion to our own destruction. Instead, what we have in Scripture is the storyline of God's redemption and his plan to redeem and buy back and pay the price for humanity's rebellion. We need to remember this storyline and see humanity's failure again and again and again. This is what we see throughout the Old Testament. Is God saying, this is what it looks like to follow me and people not being able to do it over and over and over again. And finally, he breaks through in the person of Jesus Christ and Christ comes and, and takes the cross in our place for our sin, paying the penalty for our rebellion. So there's this glorious transaction in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that he lived the life we cannot live in perfection. He died in our place for our sin and so that if you come to him, he takes your sin, he takes your guilt, he takes the, the, the penalty for all of the wrong you've done and he gives you his righteousness. Not because you've earned it, not because you do the right things to get clean enough to be able to deserve to be called righteous, but because Christ has been righteous in your place. And you are given, you are credited, it's, you are imputed with his righteousness. 
And then through his resurrection, he, he shows that he has victory over sin and death. We have the promise that he is coming back and that he will establish and make all things new, that the injustice we see will be made right, that the suffering we see will be healed, that the hurts will be healed, that the, that, that the, the brokenness of this world will be mended and all things will be made new in the end. This is the story of the gospel. You need to hear this morning that if you haven't turned to Jesus, and some of you that are still trying to earn your way into God's presence need to hear that there's nothing you can do to earn it, and you need to stop trying. Turn to him, believe in him, and you will be saved. This is the gospel. This is the good news of what God has done. And God has placed us here so that we can bring this gospel to bear in the lives of the people, to proclaim it to the people that God has placed in our lives, but also that it would inform, that the good news of the gospel would inform everything we do and how we engage in living life day to day. So God has called us to the welfare of the city, and he's given us then his word. That's the next thing we see. In verse 8 and 9, he goes on to say, the Lord, This says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams they dream, for it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. That's a scary statement. (laughs) Saying there are prophets among you, but don't listen to them. People that are claiming to speak for me, they don't. And we see this, and it would be a little bit hard to reach for what this means, except that in the previous chapter, in chapter 28, we see it in action. There's a guy named Hananiah, if you read Jeremiah 28, that has, that it, you know, God has placed his people into exile, and Jeremiah, Jeremiah's life was brutal. If you ever read the, the book of Jeremiah, the things that poor guy had to do over and over and over again, he had no friends, everybody hated him, he got beat up a lot, and had to do some really strange things that God asked him to do because it was a symbol to the people. And so Jeremiah was wearing around a wooden yoke, the thing that they would use to um, keep oxen together when they were plowing their fields. He was wearing around a wooden yoke to show the Israelites the yoke that they were bearing as exiles and slavery. And Hananiah, this other prophet, came up in chapter 28 and he says, you know, this yoke that Jeremiah is carrying, I've had a word from God. Two years and everybody's going to be freed. And so he took Jeremiah's wooden yoke and he shattered it and said, this is what God's going to do to the slavery in Babylon. Two more years and it's over. He was claiming, I mean, this is something that people would want to hear, right? In two years, we can endure anything for two years. You can, you can endure living in this area for two years. And so we can endure that. It's, I mean, it's showing escape. It's showing hope. It's showing God has, has purposes for you and you, he doesn't want you to suffer in Babylon. Two more years and you're out. But he wasn't speaking for God. And Jeremiah, he went back and God told him, you know, go back to the people and tell them, Hananiah broke that wooden yoke, but now they've got a yoke of iron. Try breaking that. This isn't going anywhere. This is going to be a lot longer than two years. This isn't, the, the, the end is not that close on the horizon. And we need to hear this. Because we have been given God's word, and too often we are prone to listen to voices that speak in contradiction to it. That we, you know, the, the reality of our exile, we've already talked about a little bit, it le- has led too many Christians to fall off into extremes. And usually people that, that speak false gospels use really good sounding language and, cra- and slap all kinds of Christian words onto it. But we have to be aware of false prophets just like in Jeremiah's time. 
And so on this, there's two extremes that we can fall into, as we talked about, that, that there are some that embrace culture at every level and do it in the name of contextualization and end up with, with people that aren't actually following God but just look a lot like the culture and then slap good Christian language on it. And then there are others who hunker down in bunkers waiting for Jesus to come back and pretend like we don't have any role or calling in reaching people now. And we can't fall off into either, either of those ends. We've been given God's word we have his truth. We have the fullness of the gospel. It's sufficient and it's authoritative and it needs to continue to inform us on what it means to be God's people. And so as we look at this, that's imp- this is an important foundation for the verses that follow. The verses that follow may be some of the most misused verses in the entire Bible. And so um, I'm, I, if, if I'm, tr- I'm, gonna, I'm not going to tread lightly on it. Um, <laughs> um, because we, when we read these verses, when it says in verse 11... I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That verse is so often taken out of context. We have songs written about it, and I think it is like the theme verse for 80% of women's ministries across the country. But we like to take this verse and say, God has plans for you. He doesn't want you to suffer. He doesn't want you to experience hurt. He wants nothing but good for you. He has a future for you. There's hope, and the things that you're experiencing now are going to pass because he doesn't have evil for you. We need to be careful on this. Because this is not saying that God doesn't want to hurt you or doesn't want you to be hurt or uncomfortable and that God wants nothing but prosperity for you. Look at the verses that surround it. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. The way we use Jeremiah 29.11 sounds more like Hananiah, the prophet, in chapter 28 saying, there's just two years left. God doesn't want hard things for you. He wants you to have nothing but good. He wants it to be easy for you. He wants good things for you. Just, it's going to be over. This yoke is shattered. But this doesn't sound that way. Seventy years later, most of the people receiving these letters would be dead. And so what they were being told by Jeremiah is, I know what you've heard from this guy. Um, this is God's word, and most of you aren't ever going to get out of Babylon. Most of you, your life will be spent in exile. But he goes on then in verse 11, so we have to break this down. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then he goes on to explain them for us. We don't have to just nebulously try to figure out what that future and hope are because he tells us in 12 to 14, he says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So what is the promise of future and hope that the Israelites have? He's saying, it's going to be 70 more years, and for some of you, your entire life on this planet is going to be in exile and suffering, and it's going to be hard. And so while you're there, invest for the welfare of the city. Build houses. Invest in the place where I've put you, because I'm the one who has sent you there. So pray to me on, on, on behalf of the place where I've put you for its welfare, because in its welfare, you'll find your own. Don't listen to the people that are telling you that there's an easy escape out of this thing. Don't listen to them. I didn't send them. The reality is... 70 more years, and then I will visit you, and then I'm going to bring you back, because he's, but he's talking to God's people. I will bring all of you back to me. The promise that we have, the hope that we have, is a relationship with him. He's saying, then you will call upon me, and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. 
He's saying, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That is the hope that we have, the promise to the Israelites, and the promise to us is that we have been given hope ultimately in Jesus, that through Jesus we have a relationship with God. Through Jesus we, have the, we know that we can pray and that God hears our prayers because he is the one who has opened the way for us through his body. Being, being in his blood shed for us. He is the one who now sits at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. And so we have hope that when we pray to God, he does hear our prayers as his people. We have hope that when we seek him with all our hearts, we will find him and we'll be found by him. Because through Jesus, we have the promise that if we seek God, we'll find him. If we call, if we call on him, he will answer us because Christ took our place for our sin. Because he has given us victory over sin and death. Because through him we have a relationship with God. And so as we look at the plans that God has for us, it may be that God's plan for your life is that your life is spent in exile and suffering in this life now. That he has put you in places that are uncomfortable and difficult now, but it's for the sake of your soul and your good and his glory. That you may experience suffering for this entire life now, but if you have the promise that suffering now will lead you to seek God and that your prayers are answered and that in the end you will have the inheritance of Jesus Christ, then bring on the suffering now because the ultimate good is going to be for eternity. What's 70 years here of suffering if, if for eternity you're in his presence? And so don't turn Jeremiah 29, 11 into an escapism. It's going to, you're going to feel better because it might not ever get better in this life. It might be hard. You might feel like you're in exile throughout all this life. And if you don't, if you have moments of prosperity and ease and comfort in life, then thank God for the extra blessing of them and be careful not to believe that you've earned them. And God has given us a future through Jesus. This is what he says to the Israelites, that I will be found by you. I will restore your fortunes and gather you in from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. He's saying, I'm going to bring you back to myself declares the Lord, I will bring you back from the place in which I, from which I sent you into exile. And we need to hear that like the Israelites, they were being promised a future inheritance. We read, if you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we read in Colossians 1 that we are promised a share in Jesus' inheritance. That's a great inheritance, you guys, because he, he inherits all things. The inheritance, I mean, read, you read Ecclesiastes, you see that the inheritance we earn on the, in this life, all the work we do, every, all, the, all the wealth we accrue, all of that stuff, it just, it's, it's, a, it's a mist. It's like grabbing it, a vapor. You can't take it with you and it's gone at the end of this life. You don't even know who it's going to go to. It might, you might leave it to your kids and think your kids are going to be great and they might be fools with your money. So you can't even promise building a future for your family. But if you're in Christ, you have the promise of a share in his inheritance. The one who will inherit all things in the new heavens and new earth. So we need to hear this, that our hope is not in our careers over which we have less control than we'd like to think. Our hope is not in our wealth, in the barns that we build up for ourselves. Our hope is not in politicians who make great promises to leverage votes but show their limitations. Our hope is not as Christians in gaining cultural clout to change culture, but rather we have hope in one ultimate king, that he will renew and restore all things under, under his perfect reign. So this is what we see in Jeremiah chapter 29, that we live as Christians in exile, as sojourners in this place. 
church planting, you feel this acutely, especially in places as transient as this. But starting new churches is difficult because Satan hates it because there's, it's an affront to his kingdom. That verse that, that was pulled out of Matthew 16 in the video is, 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 is important, so important to cling to in the early days of planting a church, knowing that if you plant the seeds of the gospel, that they will grow best in the darkest soil. That, that it is not you who will build Jesus' church for him to earn your way into his favor. And that as you do the work of establishing this, this gospel work in this place, that you are, what you are doing is planting these seeds of the gospel, praying, cultivating, watering them, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, but it's God who gives the growth. And he is the one who has put you where he has, when he has. I believe that God has placed you here at this time. I believe that, that you as individuals are placed here at this time and involved in this church for a reason at this time. Uh, we need to stop stressing out over all the problems with our culture. We should expect those. The Trinity is not Father and Son and Spirit having a conference in the heavens right now, wringing their hands, saying, what are we going to do about America? <laughs> Nothing is surprising to God. He knows exactly what's going on, and he knows what is going to come, and we do not. But he has placed you here at this time. So engage where God has put you. Live life where God has put you right now. I believe that God has placed you here for the welfare of your city. Here in Alexandria immediately and part of the D.C. area more broadly. That through gospel-centered worship and community and work as a church, you can be used by God to bring peace and wholeness and rest because you have the only source of ultimate shalom in Christ to offer to people. Don't lose sight of that. You have unique opportunities to join God in his work in forming and filling and cultivating his creation and bringing the gospel to bear in your life and in the people's lives around you. I believe God has given you his word that you as a church need to continue to faithfully saturate yourselves in the word so that you don't just fall into embracing the idols of our culture, so that you don't, as a church, try to just escape our culture and pretend that you can live exempt from it, but instead that you would do the hard work consistently, week in and week out in your worship, in in your community groups, and as individuals in your... personal study in the word, that to, to apply God's word to your lives so that you'll be prepared to engage our culture with the gospel and so that you won't fall off into following false gospels. Cling to God's word. Let it saturate yourselves and your lives in this church. I believe that your ultimate hope as individuals and as a church rests only in Jesus. This is hard in the early days of church planting especially, Um, Your methodology and your church structures and all the things that you do that are so important, the decisions that you make in the early days that are vitally important, uh, they still do not guarantee anything. They are not where your hope lies to see things grow and see God work. You can rest that you've had a relationship with God restored through Jesus. You have a chance to offer people hope. Let the gospel be at the center. And I believe that you have a future through Jesus. This place is not your ultimate home, but it is home right now. And you need to live here with reckless abandon that comes from the confidence that whatever happens here, God's the one that's in control. 
And whatever happens to you in this life, whatever you experience, whether good or bad, whether prosperity or suffering, whether comfort or, or despair, that whatever happens in this life, you have eternity in store for you. That frees you to just engage and pour yourself into what, whatever may come. And I believe that, God, that Jesus has begun a work here in the transit church that will continue, that he will, that he will be faithful to build his church as you are faithful to him. So this is our call, my call to you on your first anniversary. So congratulations. One year is, it is really difficult to make. Church planting is a hard thing to do. It's hard for those who are leading the way, like Pastor Jeff. It's difficult for anybody that's involved from the ground level up. It's hard, agonizing over the, the details of what goes on, trying to figure out the dynamics of, of, you have to choose and have a purpose for everything that you do, um, and it's so difficult to do. You made it a year, so congratulations on that, but the work has just begun. Don't get comfortable. Don't rest in, in your success to this point. Continue to remember that you're in exile, that God has placed here for a reason. And don't hold back. Don't have a plan B. Don't spend your life wishing you were somewhere else, doing something else. Pour yourself into the place and the people that God has put around you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to us, for the love you've shown us ultimately through Christ. And I thank you for the work that you have done and continue to do through this church. I ask, Lord, that you would... Help Pastor Jeff and um, the people of the transit to realize that you are the one who has put them here at this time for, their, for your purposes and your glory. And that they would see the opportunities they have to seek the shalom of this city and to bring the gospel to bear in their lives. That, that they would rest and be saturated in your word. That they would find their hope in Jesus and rely on the future they have in him. Father, I thank you that as we do all the hard work of planting and cultivating and watering the seeds of the gospel, that we can rest, that you are the one who brings the growth, that you are the one who changes hearts, that you are the one who saves men and women. I ask that you would pour your spirit out into into this place and through this church. That's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.